top of whatever the fuck you're listening to this, unfuckers and subfuckers. Lots of great feedback still coming in from the Assange episode. Don't have to like him to free him. Reagan destroyed the middle class. Obama was an assassin. AOC is a goddess. And fuck Milton Friedman. There, you're all caught up. I hope you enjoyed our Republican rehab quickie last week. We're in a pretty good rhythm right now, so we're going to keep the hits right on coming. This episode is actually one of the first ones that I had on the board when I started formulating Unfucking the Republic. I had a chance to visit Cuba with my partner in crime right as Trump was coming into office, and the time we spent there stuck with me more than literally any other place that I've traveled. And what's fun about telling Americans that you visited Cuba is they're like, whoa, man, what's it like? Like you just got back from the fucking moon. And Canadians are like, oh yeah, isn't it great? Me and the wife love getting out and about in the classic cars, eh? What I can tell you up top before we spiral into the Cuban abyss is that it took me a few days to wrap my head around this little island nation. It was like every preconceived notion I had about it was just fucking wrong. There was a healthy mix of controlled government narrative bullshit that they jammed down our throats as clear tourists, which only served to counteract the bullshit narrative that the U.S. had been shoveling down our throats since for, I don't know, fucking ever. The genuine experiences we had mixing with the Cuban people, and full disclosure, we only spent time in Havana, and Cuba is so much more than Havana. They were delightful. Everything was eye-opening, and the people were just chill as fuck. Our biggest takeaway was the fucking music. We fell in love for life with the music, and it seemingly poured out of every person, every window, every door. Bro, if you start singing, I'm cutting this off right now. So I'll intersperse some observations on our audio journey today, but there's honestly so much rich history, particularly as it relates to the fraught relationship between Cuba and the U.S., that it will be a lot to get through. Some quick follow-up notes before we dive into this episode. A reminder that if you have auditory processing issues, you can click on a link in the show notes to bring you to a separate feed that streams each episode without background music. Also, we've had a ton of feedback on the launch of our coffee line to support a native coffee roaster in New York as well as the show, and we're in great shape to launch the line on June 15th. So we'll be sending out notifications through Substack and giving updates on the pod as well as we get closer to the date. Our website currently, where so many of you have logged on to send us donations through the Buy Us Coffee button, is unftrpod.com. But soon, it's going to redirect to the new home for the show, where all of the information from coffee to t-shirts to bookshop.org and subscriber features will live. Remember that we'll never charge for Substack membership because that's where we archive the essays the episodes are framed around. This is also where we send out content not really meant for audio and updates about the show. Our subscriber base is growing really fast, so thank you all for helping us trend on Substack and for helping to, you know, just get our shit found. One more announcement before we review the order of things today. I would be remiss if I didn't promote another show that is launching a full series on Cuba. I have no relationship or affiliation with this crew, but if their prior work is any indication of how good this series is going to be, then it should be fucking awesome. It's called Blowback, and it's hosted by Chapo alumni Brendan James and Noah Colwyn. If you're familiar with their first series on Iraq, then you know that these guys are the real deal. The trailer episode for their Cuba series is live, and honestly, it sounds even more amazing. So if this episode of UNFTR gets your juices flowing over Cuba and you want to fall completely down the rabbit hole, this is probably a great place to go. One note is that the first run of Blowback outside of the teaser will be available first on Stitcher Premium before it goes full run. But if ever there was a case for Stitcher, this is probably it. Hey, so you're going to just promote everyone else's shit, or can we get down to business? Indeed we shall, my esteemed friend and colleague. Indeed we shall. Today on Unfucking the Republic, we start by time traveling to 1959, to the Cuban Revolution, and to tell the story of the strange and beautiful island nation of Cuba. 
And when in 1959, we're going to go down a slightly different path than most of the historical accounts of this year that are fed to us in the United States and focus on the second most prominent figure of the revolution. Hint, it is not Che Guevara. We'll work through the beginning of the 60-year rift between the U.S. and Cuba, including the big events during the Kennedy administration, but we're really not going to spend much time on this because the mythology surrounding what we call the Cuban Missile Crisis and what the Cubans refer to as the October Crisis of 1962 is frankly so sensationalized and overdone at this point. I love how specific they are, by the way, about the date. It's like just one of a thousand crises that they face, so they just have to keep track of it by date. Anyway, Like so many events in our history, this period has been whitewashed, analyzed, summarized, contextualized, etc. So as usual, we'll just take a different approach. Then we'll cleanse the palate once more as we eavesdrop on a phone call between two famous bills. Oh, for the love of... (sighs) After the break, we'll dissect the good and the bad of Cuban life, their political and economic fortunes, and explain how the Castro brothers have managed to survive countless interventions from the United States and its allies in a regime that crosses over 13... Yes, 13 successive U.S. presidential administrations. And because this is Unfucking the Republic, we'll crisscross between Cuban and American timelines to talk about what was happening on both sides to influence our opposition to one another and zero in on the burgeoning neoliberal economic policies in the United States that colored our view of Latin American interventions. 90 miles away, partnership with a friendly government. 90 miles. It's nothing. One small step looking for a man that wants to be president of the United States and having the cash to make it possible. Michael, we're bigger than U.S. steel. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Started a podcast Another basic white guy who Started a podcast But it's fun because he curses In 1958, the Mafia in the U.S., in partnership with unions and wealthy investors, were closing in on Havana. With the U.S. preoccupied with the escalating Cold War and waning support in D.C. for the leadership of Fulgencia Batista in Cuba, a band of Cuban rebels were making serious progress in the fight for Cuban independence. Bearing 26th of July banners, joyous followers of Fidel Castro sweep triumphantly through the Cuban capital hours after their rebellion had toppled the regime of Fulgencio Batista. The 26th of July refers to that day in 1953 when Castro began his long struggle to overthrow the dictator Batista with an abortive armed attack. By the time opposition to Batista entered the presidential palace to assume control on New Year's in 1959, the dictator had already fled the country. Negotiations between Castro, who was engaged in battle across the island at the time of Batista's exodus, and those who assumed control began that night. And on January 2nd, the first of Castro's troops, led by two men forever linked to the revolution and the future of Cuba, entered the city of Havana and claimed victory for good. One was Che Guevara, a man known all over the world even today as the bearded guy in a communist hat clueless people wear on their t-shirt. Contrary to popular retellings of the revolution, it's the other guy we're focusing on because his story reveals much more about what Cuba was and was about to become.
Obviously, a ton has been written about the Cuban Revolution. But for me, the story hinges on three important words. Voy bien, Camilo. One of the most important figures in modern Cuban history is a man named Camilo Cienfuegos. Images of Cienfuegos are everywhere in Havana. His legend is enormous, which I found interesting considering how little is said of him outside of Cuba. Children in school are called Camilitos in his honor. And every year on the anniversary of his death, school children head to the beach and set flowers in the water to honor his memory. His story and legend is taught to them early, and his iconic cowboy hat and beard are as ubiquitous throughout the island as the patented Che Guevara image. The reason I start with him is because what happened to Cienfuegos is an allegory for the next 60 years of Cuban history. Cienfuegos would become politically engaged during the student protests against Fulgencio Batista. At one protest, he was actually wounded by a bullet from Batista's army. He gained brief notoriety from this event, but after that he actually just kind of bounced around, including in the United States, before he eventually separated from his girlfriend and went down to Mexico to hook up with other exiled revolutionaries. Because he wasn't a communist or even really that ideological, it actually took a while for Cienfuegos to be trusted by the others. But once the revolutionaries made good on their plans and launched an invasion into Cuba, he immediately proved himself to be one of the most valuable leaders in the fight. From the mountain hideaway positions where Batista's army had difficulty tracking the insurgents, Cienfuegos was personally tapped by Guevara to lead a unit and he quickly gained a reputation for protecting his men above all else. This was a surprise to those who knew him growing up because he had never previously demonstrated any of the revolutionary characteristics or political spirit that would ultimately define him. After winning several skirmishes on the island and as Batista's grip loosened, it was Cienfuegos who was the first to enter Havana on Fidel's orders and essentially take the city in a bloodless coup alongside Guevara and only a handful of soldiers. Fidel himself wouldn't arrive with his victory caravan for another six days. So at the beginning stages, at least in Havana, Camilo was the face of the revolution. When Fidel established his government, it really wasn't exactly clear what shape it would take. And at this time, Castro identified actually as a Democrat who was interested in expelling Batista, the dictator, and re-establishing the Constitution of Cuba in the spirit of José Martí, another lionized figure in Cuban history, basically associated with the liberation from Spain. The associates closest to him were Che Guevara, who, as an Argentine Marxist revolutionary, was a beloved outsider, but an outsider nonetheless. Cienfuegos was still ideologically agnostic but it was a known fact that he did not identify as a Marxist in any way, shape, or form. The real ideological force of the group was Fidel's brother Raul, who was a devout Marxist and cold-blooded militarist, who upon taking a role in his brother's government, began devising ways to eliminate Batista loyalists whether or not they had surrendered peaceably and given themselves over to the new regime. The story at this point hinges on one important fact, and that is next to Fidel, Cienfuegos emerged as the most popular figure of the revolution, and many would argue that he was actually far more popular among Cuban citizens at the time. Gradually, dissent began to grow in the ranks of the revolutionaries, many of whom had signed on for a fight to overthrow Batista, but were wary of the communist thread that ran through the ranks, most notably Raul and Che. Now, note to the listener that, as we know, history is written by the victors, so it stands to reason that what happens next would be colored over time by the Castro regime. But history is also sometimes co-authored by its exiles. And in the case of Castro, much of what we have access to comes to us from Cuban exiles who have a serious axe to grind. So I'm going to stick closely to the events and relay information that, first of all, I garnered from witnessing the treatment of Cienfuegos by Cuban institutions. 
as well as speaking to people there who were surprisingly open about the controversy surrounding him. And I'll mix that with historical accounts from both history books and documentary footage from exiles. Like most things, the truth probably lies somewhere in between, but it doesn't make this moment any less important. Hubert Matos was another of Castro's revolutionary fighters who joined his administration after the fall of Batista. He was a friend and confidant of Cienfuegos and had a plum position in the Castro administration. But things were turning quickly inside the Castro camp. Guevara and Raul Castro were gaining an influence as Fidel tended to matters abroad and attempted to cobble together a functioning government and economy that under existing sanctions when the U.S. fell out with the Batista regime was struggling mightily. Fidel's preoccupation with governing, despite appointing others to the top spots and claiming he was merely the humble Cuban servant who restored order to the Cuban universe, kept him from tending to -to day-to-day affairs. It didn't take long for Guevara and Raul to begin exerting influence over military and political affairs and to bring the fledgling regime closer to communism. One of the most outspoken critics of these developments early on was Hubert Matos. In the beginning, Fidel attempted to assuage Matos and assure him that Cuba wasn't heading in the direction of a communist state. But these assurances would soon dissolve, and Matos fell out of favor almost overnight. In October of 1959, Fidel dispatched his loyal emissary and beloved figure to the Cuban people, Camilo Cienfuegos, to arrest his friend and bring him back to Havana to stand trial. According to those who knew him, This was an impossible situation for Cienfuegos, who himself was battling with Guevara and Raul inside the newly established government. Battling and losing. Apart from the Sophie's choice of either arresting his friend with whom he was politically aligned and rejecting an order from his leader Fidel, Cienfuegos had a bigger problem on his hands. Those three words, Voy bien, Camilo? Or in English, Am I doing okay, Camilo? Just days after the revolution, Fidel Castro addressed an enormous crowd that had gathered to hear from the revolutionary leader who had freed Cuba in the spirit of Marti. About midway through a fiery speech, according to legend and witness accounts, Cienfuegos appeared on the balcony and the crowd erupted into chants of Camilo. Now, according to Cuban exiles, and remember that the perspective we're talking about here is from them, this was the beginning of the end of the popular Cienfuegos. Fidel, upon hearing the chants, brought his friend forward for the crowd to see plainly and asked him, Voy bien, Camilo? The humble man of the people, who claimed his only ideology was as a Fidelista, this regular citizen turned revolutionary who led his troops with honor and won the hearts of the Cuban people, responded simply and humbly, Vas bien, Fidel. You're doing fine, Fidel. These words are, to this day, a revolutionary slogan known by every single Cuban. Ten months later, after arresting his friend Hubert Matos and assuring him that things would be okay, Cienfuegos was asked to remain in Camagüey, where his friend Matos was stationed, to prevent, you know, any other uprisings, though these never came. Then days later, on October 28th, he was summoned back to Havana, only he would never arrive. Primer teniente Luciano Fariñas Rodríguez 
y el soldado rebelde Félix Rodríguez, los que desgraciadamente no han llegado a su destino. The Cessna carrying Camilo Cienfuegos disappeared after takeoff. Despite a three-day search, neither his plane nor the passengers aboard were ever found. Nothing. Conspiracy theorists believe the plane took off for America and Cienfuegos settled somewhere in Florida, knowing that he too had fallen out of favor with Fidel. There is zero evidence of this. Others report an armed military plane taking off shortly after Cienfuegos' flight and believe that he was shot down and killed on Fidel's orders. The Castro brothers would repeatedly float the rumor that it was the CIA who had killed him, and others believe it was simply a tragic accident. Regardless of what happened to arguably the most popular figure of the revolution, now lost to the history books in America for sure, this moment in time was massively important and marks the true beginning of our story today. The bloodless revolution had its martyr. Raul and Che had control of the party. And the murky circumstances surrounding Camilo's death sent a message to those who might defy Fidel. Just the possibility, the hint of a notion that Fidel would order the murder of his friend and the beating heart of the Cuban people was enough to cement his position as the dictator of Cuba who could not and should not ever be crossed. So fast forward under President Obama, there was a detente of sorts, the beginning of a cooling off in hostilities. Fidel had long been out of public sight, and Raul was signaling a future without a Castro at the helm. It was a small opening, but an opening. On the bottom level of a terminal in JFK, at what appeared to be a makeshift gate, we breezed through security and boarded a direct flight to Havana. Having lived in New York for so long and being accustomed to redonkulous lines at the airport, the trip was already weird. Tourists are treated with great care there, but there's also that super creepy feeling that you know that they know that you're there. Now, I don't think the Cuban surveillance apparatus is anything like the United States, but this wouldn't necessarily be a place one could hide for very long. The heat? Ugh, the heat was unbelievable. And yet, nobody was sweating. That was my first fucking observation because I spent the entire time with busboy ass. And the lore of Havana being filled with classic American cars from the 1950s? It's all true. In fact, it's fucking surreal and awesome and sad and cool. We heard a collection of what I would consider the finest musicians in the world, truly incomparable. Nearly everyone we met was willing to speak openly about Cuban history, a source of tremendous pride. The desire for relations with the United States to improve, though the disdain for our leadership is certainly palpable and understandable, was expressed almost universally. The National Museum in Havana is a trip because it contains amazing photographs of the revolution and some of the most laughable propaganda that you'll probably ever see. And there's a wall as soon as you enter that has caricatures of the U.S. presidents in really compromising poses. Just pure mockery of the United States. The markets were bare, and I mean bare. The soccer fields were large patches of dirt. Buildings were in complete disrepair everywhere we went. There also wasn't a homeless person in sight. Everyone we saw had great skin and beautiful teeth. People with the most menial jobs were a wealth of knowledge and information and also happy to share their education degrees with you. Strangers that we spoke with spoke adoringly of Fidel in one breath and then called him a murderous dictator in the next. They called the United States their, quote, natural brother, and yet condemned us with pure hatred as only a sibling can. 
They welcomed the idea of tourists coming to their island on grand ships to promote tourism, but showed very little interest in giving up nationalized businesses. You can visit, but you can't stay. The young people we met yearned for internet access and spoke of one day visiting the United States, but only visiting. No one that we spoke to really expressed the desire to get the fuck out of there. This is their paradise and their prison. On one tour, someone asked our guide what she thought the Cuban people really, really wanted the most. And without missing a beat, she said, Home Depot. Home Depot would be nice. Because there are so many talented builders and engineers there that they could make things so beautiful, but they have no materials, no tools, just nothing to build with. These people have kept automobiles on the road for 60 fucking years with pixie dust and bubble gum. But there's not a fucking hammer or a screwdriver to be found because our hatred of this island, of the Castro brothers and everything they represent, is so deep and so layered that we've tied a tourniquet around the entire place and squeezed it with all of our might for decades. Hello? Bill? It's Bill. Hey, how'd you get this number? This is my burner phone. How did I get this? I'm Bill Gates. How do you think I got this number? <laughs> okay, how's it hanging? Not great. That's why I'm calling. Oh, yeah. Hey, I heard about the divorce thing. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Yeah, well, we have bigger issues. Melinda is on to the Epstein thing. Hey, you know I can't talk about that now. I have no idea where Hillary is. She's 400 yards away from you. We're fine. Hey, how did you- She's vaccinated. I know her location. Hey, I'm vaccinated too. Can you tell what I'm doing right now? Of course not. Okay, actually I can. And please put it away. <laughs> it's my mid-afternoon pud tug. Oh, hang on. I'm getting another call. Hello, Bill. It's Donald. We have a huge problem on our hands. The Epstein thing. It's back. Hey, that's strange timing. I'm on with other Bill right now. Hey, wait, how'd you get this number? Rudy gave it to me. Fucking Rudy. Hang on, I'll conference you in with Bill. Hey, Bill, are you there? I have Donald on the line. I know. Listen closely. Hillary is on the move. She's only 50 feet away and closing fast. Who's on the phone? Uh, it's just Al Gore, baby. Just catching up on old times. Bullshit. You hate him. Give me the phone. Fuck. Sorry, guys. Who is this? Hillary, it's me, Donald, and my fantastic friend, a really, really smart guy. He doesn't have my brain. I have such a great brain, but he's a really smart, really intelligent- Shut up, you idiot. I know it's Gates. I can smell him. Through the phone? Man, I thought my vaccine chips were creepy. Listen to me, you turds. Because none of you can keep your dicks in your pants, I'm going to have to kill again. This is the last time. One more slip up, and I'm coming for all of you. Oh, and Bill, lunch is ready. Hey, great. I'm hungry. <laughs> what are we having? Eye of Newt. Oh, not one of your potions again. No, literally, Eye of Newt Gingrich. I took his eye, and we're going to eat it. Those in the U.S. looking to Cuba as a source of inspiration for a socialist revolution will come face to face with the harsh reality of a failed state run by a brutal autocrat whose biggest initiatives failed spectacularly. Those seeking comfort in this as proof that socialism is a fraud will be disappointed to learn that the most positive aspects of Cuban society that have endured are the socialist programs that can be traced even to the early days of Batista. 
Now, the early days of the revolution offer great insight into Castro as a leader. The difference between Fidel Castro's populist rhetoric broadcast on Guevara's pirate radio channel is stark in comparison to his conciliatory interviews with American journalists who originally painted him as a hero of democracy. Once in power, he betrayed those close to him, played on the emotions of the people, and cozied up to economic suitors that filled immediate needs. Castro's policies changed almost daily in the early years especially. It's clear in retrospect that he was never a man of great ideology or capability in terms of governance. Nor was he a particularly gifted fighter or strategist. He was an opportunist of the highest order and an almost unrivaled propagandist. Still, the revolution belonged to the Castro brothers and no one else. Raul Castro was a capable communist who ruled ruthlessly from the shadows. Fidel was a master prevaricator who found good fortune in even the worst setbacks. From escaping death when his first band of guerrilla fighters were mostly massacred to being pardoned by the very man that he sought to overthrow, Fidel personally dodged every bullet. The Cuban people and some of his closest allies didn't fare as well under Fidel's Faustine bargain. Guevara was an uncompromising intellectual and idealist who captured the zeitgeist of the uprising. He was also a murderer and a misogynist who exacted brutal revenge on all those who would oppose him. He would grow apart from Castro after a few years and return to his revolutionary roots in South America and ultimately enter martyrdom, cementing his now mythical status. Considering Fidel was a failure in nearly every respect leading up to the 1959 revolution, it's astounding how quickly he was able to consolidate his power. This was truly his gift. What's frustrating about attempts by the political left in America to portray Cuba as a champion of socialism and egalitarianism is that they ignore his utter ruthlessness. Throughout the 1970s, it's estimated that the regime imprisoned some 20,000 political dissidents. Until the last few years, the island itself was a virtual prison for LGBTQ people. His economic policies and insistence upon a return to a sugar-based agrarian economy were largely shams that shackled Cuba to its Soviet masters, which sentenced the island economy to certain death when the Iron Curtain fell. On the island, it's referred to as the Special Period, or as one of our more outspoken guides said plainly, the 90s were tough because we literally lost our sugar daddy. Time and again, Fidel's economic instincts proved disastrous, while core social programs such as universal health care, quality education, and welfare endured. One can only imagine how the country might have flourished if the socialist policies were housed within a more open society and less bureaucratic government. At his White House press conference, President Eisenhower announces that Cuba's assigned share of the United States sugar market has been cut by 95% for the balance of 1960, in reply to what I call Fidel Castro's deliberate policy of hostility. I have emphasized before that this was a struggle of Cuban patriots against a Cuban dictator. We're wondering when the proud nation of Cuba, just 90 miles from our coast, will be liberated from the yoke of communism. We are quarantining Mr. Castro today. We are cutting off the significant items that the Cuban regime needs in order to survive. But I add very emphatically, we will not accept intervention by the Fidel Castro regime and the Castro affairs. 
has violated his own uh, constitution and laws and not permitting opposing voices. One day to the be Cuban heard. people will once breathe again. the fresh air of freedom Unless and celebrate Fidel Castro is willing to change his policies we and will maintain our present policy of the nature of the Cuban today, regime. After violent, repressive, scornful of international law. Today, Cuba is still governed by the Communist Party that can have power. The Obama Biden the Castro regime in Cuba has been very strong on Cuba. Cuba is not doing so well. We changed the policy. We began to be open up and get so much more support within the region. Hollywood would have us believe that the United States was hunky-dory with the Batista regime and caught completely off guard when Castro took over. Now, in reality, the United States was already exercising economic influence over Cuba and punishing Batista with sanctions during the Eisenhower administration. And initially, when Castro took over, there was some optimism in D.C. and among American journalists who were fascinated by the revolutionaries. Because... They're fucking fascinating. And Americans love a good underdog story. They love it until the underdog lifts its leg and starts pissing on us, of course. So in the late stages of Ike's term, the CIA began plotting ways to first control and then oust Castro if necessary. Now remember, at the time, Fidel was sort of a freelance mercenary who had yet to tip his hand. It was at the height of the Cold War and he had options that, at the time, seemed fairly equal. For their part, the Soviets treated the Castro regime as somewhat of a curiosity and a distraction. But when it started to become clear that there was a Marxist strain in the Castro family, suddenly the U.S. and the Soviet Union began to take a keen interest in what would happen next. At a secret base in the Guatemalan jungle, American CIA agents had been training Cuban exiles to invade Cuba. This, they thought, would be the impetus for the Cuban people to rise up and overthrow Castro. The plan was presented to the new president, John F. Kennedy. Needless to say, this did not go well. The CIA-backed invasion was a fucking embarrassment to the United States and a self-inflicted wound. It was sold to a naive Kennedy administration by leftovers from Ike. Kennedy would thereafter be at odds with his own intelligence agencies over the blunder and cause him to close ranks with Brother Bobby at the same time the Castro brothers also closed ranks, hardened their stance against the United States, and cozied up to the Soviets. When you think about the timing of this, it's massively fucked up. The Bay of Pigs was only in the second year of the Castro regime, and it ensured that any option of diplomacy or an attempt at an economic reconciliation immediately came off the table. The signs were chosen, and our dangerous game allowed for a hungry dictator to select quite possibly the worst ally in the eyes of the Americans to befriend. Thus, it was only one year after this failed coup attempt that the world came to the brink of disaster in a possible nuclear engagement between the two leading superpowers. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. American historians would fawn over Kennedy for his handling of this crisis. Books would be written and movies would be made about how Kennedy grew into the presidency overnight and looked the Russian bear right in the eye until the bear blinked and the Russians turned their vessels around and slunk back to the Soviet Union with the tails between their legs. What's missing from this narrative, of course, is why the fuck the ships were there in the first fucking place. 
Like how we blame countries today for calling death to America after we maul their civilians and pillage their natural resources. See, the United States had moved ballistic missiles into Turkey and Italy, which prompted outrage, obviously, from the Soviet Union, who saw this as a major threat. Now, after the Bay of Pigs and other bullshit attempts by the U.S. to meddle in Cuban affairs, Fidel Castro made a plea for protection to the Soviets, who were all too happy to play tit-for-tat with us since we were literally moving our nuclear arsenal into their backyard. The reality of the situation, while admittedly tense, and I do not want to understate the importance of this moment, was that our leaders just reached an agreement that dismantled the Soviet arsenal in Cuba and the American arsenal in Turkey. The United States also agreed not to directly invade Cuba again. Hardy fucking har har. I'm guessing Kennedy was like, uh, and then I told them that uh, we wouldn't invade Cuba again, but I had my fingers crossed, so it doesn't really matter. Now what does matter is that I spend the rest of my time in office trying to get my dick sucked. So, we're through the History Channel shit, right? My sense from speaking with people about Cuba, and from my own education experience, is that as Americans, we have a pretty enormous gap in knowledge between the Kennedy years and today. In many ways, this is kind of accurate. Now, it's not to say Cuba doesn't have a rich history from this period on, but the choice to ally with the Soviets over the United States placed Cuba in kind of an arrested development by the measures that we would typically consider the most meaningful. Cuba would remain largely agrarian through the 60s and the 70s, relying on favorable price-fixed deals for its primary export, sugar. Like so many dictatorships that maintained tight control at the top, there was precious little innovation in these decades while the rest of the industrialized world was kind of experiencing somewhat of a renaissance. Fidel turned out to be a terrible economic planner, and he failed to diversify the Cuban economy in any meaningful way. But for a time, it didn't matter all that much to the average citizen because the social policies flourished. Education immediately became a right, and Cuban literacy skyrocketed, and it remains that way today. They made incredible advances in medicine and healthcare and biotechnology, and all of these things became a natural right. But because of their proximity to the United States and our ability to prevent neighboring and U.S. allied nations from doing any sort of business or participating in trade agreements, Cuba was stuck with the partners it had on the other side of the world. The rest of Latin America was sympathetic to the Cuban cause, and several were able to do business with Castro, but the core goods and services that would have modernized the Cuban economy were essentially unavailable. And so, tobacco, rum, and mostly sugar held the island together. So the 60s and 70s had a few consequences. For one, it solidified Castro's reputation as the guy who gave the United States the middle finger and successfully evaded multiple attempts by the Americans to either oust him or assassinate him. This made him a hero to the people throughout Latin America. On the island, it was a little different story. As his international stature grew, his grip on dissidents tightened, and he imprisoned thousands and purportedly disappeared hundreds, perhaps thousands more. This is the dark side of Castro that simply cannot be ignored, regardless of how impressive the social gains of an increase in life expectancy, decrease in infant mortality, universal health care and literacy, etc. were. Then, in the late 70s, Cuba entered a deep recession along with the rest of the world. Even the price-fixed goods they sold to communist allies weren't enough to prop up the economy, and the island began to fall on hard times. It was during the time of Carter that an opening occurred for Cuban and U.S. relations to thaw a little bit, and diplomatic channels were opened up. Perhaps the biggest event that occurred was something called the Mariel Boatlift. A flood of Haitian refugees were streaming into America in makeshift flotillas, and Cubans suddenly had the same idea. 
So Carter worked out a deal for a short time that allowed Cubans to take asylum in the United States so long as Castro released political prisoners. Castro was all too happy to oblige because he took the opportunity to ship out dissidents who were kind of expensive to care for in prison, along with those he considered undesirable, including a host of criminals. Hey, I'm no fucking criminal, man. I'm no put of a thief. I'm Tony Montana, a political prisoner from Cuba. And I want my fucking human right now. Just like the president, Jimmy Carter says. Okay? The Cuban exiles and political prisoners who made it to Miami would over time exert a tremendous amount of influence over the all-important state of Florida. And ironically, prevent Castro from making any further inroads with the United States in the future. But something else was happening around this time as we headed into the go-go 80s. Neoliberalism was about to move from the textbooks and white papers and go to work in practice under the Reagan administration. Oh, and we were about to win the Cold War. Well, I suppose it's time to bring in our favorite whipping boy, Bucking Milton Friedman. Poster boy of neoliberal economic policy and purveyor of free trade fuckery that would clear the way for the United States to pillage, rape, and plunder Latin America. I bet old shorty pants fuckstick had a hand in fucking over the Cuban people with his bullshit view of the world. So, actually, Friedman despised our policy towards Cuba and believed that we should end all sanctions against them. That's okay on fuckers. He's still a fuckhead. We'll take him apart in a bit. But on this, Uncle Dickhead is actually pretty clear and consistent. Remember that the Chicago boys were all about free trade. Any artificial impediment to doing business between nations was a non-starter for them, and Friedman actually advised against Cuban and other sanctions. They also despised price-fixing in the market, which made them anti-communist for sure. So the idea that Cuba was able to get along by relying on subsidized sugar and other natural resources was totally anathema to neoliberal philosophy. Where they do come very much into play is in Latin America and Mexico during the 80s. Politically, Reagan would quite clearly reverse course from Carter and shut down any hope of working with the Cuban government. This suited the fresh Cuban-American population that rooted mostly in Miami just fine. So we'll have to move our attention just slightly to explain how the Mexican debt crisis of 1982 was a seminal moment. Understand that the Chicago school theories were now in full swing under Reagan, and a debtor nation was music to the ears of the Reagan administration. Mexico was just the beginning of the debt crisis that spread throughout Latin America. And throughout the 80s, it would spread like a virus. And with the Soviet bloc finally out of the picture financially, even before the Iron Curtain fell, Latin American countries had precious few options for debt relief. The United States, on the other hand, was about to unleash its new economic arsenal on the world. This is the super fun and wonky part, and God, I love it. I'll try to encapsulate it as best I can with respect to Cuba, but truly so much happened in this period. I fucking love it. Oh, I'm so happy. I can't even feel my arms. So here's the economic backdrop. The U.S. economy was still in crisis under Reagan, but the Chicago boys had an answer to this. Through free trade, we can go take what we need from others, and through monetary policy, we can control the flow of funds. Now remember that we came off the gold standard with Nixon's repeal of the Bretton Woods Agreement, and though things were dicey for a while, we steadily came to the realization that as the world's dominant currency, we could unleash money supply just to accumulate stuff. Other countries did not have the same ability, and at the time, they were also suffering. This was our first big shift from Keynes to Friedman, and it worked, but in a completely asymmetrical way because of what was happening politically. 
So, here's the political backdrop. During this time, we adopted what is now known as the, quote, Washington Consensus. This will be a recurring topic on fuckers, so if you haven't heard of it, tune your ears to this. The Washington Consensus had 10 specific principles. For our purposes, we'll cover the three most important points to our story today. The first is free trade, which is obviously a cornerstone, though we'll unpack how not free our idea of trade is another time. The second is the relaxation of rules on foreign direct investment, basically encouraging companies to invest abroad and vice versa. And the last is to privatize state enterprises in developing countries like railways, oil, and gas. So, add together the Washington Consensus with a newfound strategy of monetary policy muscle, the collapse of our only legitimate competitor in the world, and an appetite to simply take whatever the fuck we wanted through force, and you have the 80s! Jimena de la Barra, a public policy advisor on Latin America, said it best. She sums up our policy saying, quote, The neoliberal model is fixated on monetary stabilization and expanding markets for transnational corporations. This is an approach that has proven incapable of considering the ethical, social, and ecological costs of its financial actions. That's why we're going to cover the Washington Consensus, neoliberalism, and the Chicago School in its very own fucking episode. Back to Cuba. True to her statement, we return to our Caribbean protagonist, who was sort of left on the side during this period of U.S. expansion. Still under sanctions, chugging along in a 57 Chevy, and living without its sugar daddy was Cuba. Literate, healthy, and about to be poor as fuck. The people of Cuba are living in a crisis, a special period. It's referred throughout the land as Periodo Especial. Ah, the special period. It's the stupidest name for a decade you can possibly imagine, but that's what they call the 90s. Electricity failed, water turned foul, crops died, people rationed and went hungry. There was no soap, no building materials, everything just stopped. People rode bicycles, lived on government handouts, and this so-called special period lives vividly in the memory of Cubans as the island was kind of left on its own to fend for itself. Remember, Latin America isn't quite there yet. We're just ignoring them completely, sanctioning the fuck out of them, and they just were, well, an island. That's the story of the 90s in Cuba. It was a period of hardship that has come to define the Cuban experience almost as much as the revolution itself. To understand this with the benefit of hindsight is to know that this decade contributed to the Cuban identity of resilience maybe more than anything else. From this period forward, they adopted sort of a, fuck it, if we can endure that, we can endure anything. So ironically, an economic situation that would have dismantled the government and loosened the grip of a dictator under any normal fucking circumstances actually served to strengthen Castro's mythology. Like I said, this fucking guy, he just dodges every bullet. But resistance to Castro only hardened among Cuban exiles in the United States who were fast becoming a political and economic force, particularly in South Florida. And they found willing suitors in Washington who sought to curry favor with this new voting bloc and continue to punish the communist dictatorship. Most notably was the even tighter measures in the Helms-Burton Act in 1995, authored by Representative Dan Burns and Senator Jesse Helms. The text of the act says it all to seek international sanctions against the Castro government in Cuba to plan for support of a transition government leading to a democratically elected government in Cuba and for other purposes. We tried a secret coup. We tried killing them. We sanctioned the fuck out of them and made them a pawn in U.S.-Soviet relations. 
We codified these measures through legislation and squeezed as hard as we could to put the nail in the coffin of Castro, but nothing fucking worked. He's still alive. They hit him with five shots and he's still alive. Nevertheless, they persisted and they did it by blaming us, which was kind of fair. But the conditions for marginalized groups remained abysmal and the Cuban infrastructure essentially failed on a wholesale level. Then in the 2000s, things began to loosen up a bit as other Latin American countries began to climb out of poverty and follow the path of their aging hero, Fidel Castro. It's hard to explain the massive impact the Cuban revolution and subsequent regime had on the mindset of Latin American countries. To some, it was and remains the ultimate expression of freedom, self-determination, and independence. The ultimate fuck you to the neoliberal policies of the United States and conquering nations prior, such as Spain. Over time, the luster wore off in many countries, with most choosing to take a bite of the free trade apple. It's safe to say, however, that the admiration for the Cuban model is still deep-seated, particularly among the rural poor throughout Latin America. And in the early 2000s, a light emerged for Castro. It began to operate under sort of a, well, we made it this fucking far kind of attitude. And critically, an agreement called ALBA was formed. It was an economic agreement between Latin nations Bolivia, Venezuela, and Cuba. Over time, additional agreements would pull in Brazil and Uruguay. This was done to counter simultaneous efforts in Washington to create the Free Trade of the Americas Agreement, or FTA, to encompass trade, investments, and intellectual property, and bring Latin nations more into the fold along the lines of the trade agreements the U.S. had forced with Mexico, Chile, and the Dominican Republic. Though I haven't seen this correlation formally inked anywhere, though I imagine it exists, the FTA almost feels like a blueprint and precursor for what the Obama administration was trying to secretly push through with the TPP. Good things and bad things, all under the cover of free trade, but certainly asymmetrical as the United States had the most to gain from making the market, exploiting cheap labor, and protecting IP under Washingtonian standards primarily. As usual, the U.S. forgot to ask whether anyone else was interested. And this time, we were met with not one, but two middle fingers. One from Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, and the other from our dear old friend Fidel. So, unfuckers, this is where we begin to wind down our story and draw some conclusions. Our meddling in Latin America will be covered specifically and peripherally in future episodes, especially as we talk about the rise of Uncle Fuckbreath in the Chicago School. But to put a bow in the last 20 years, Cuba essentially experienced somewhat of a rebirth, albeit a very, very slow one. With newly formed alliances that were oil-rich and having no part of U.S. shenanigans, Cuba was able to regain its footing, turn the lights back on, increase the flow of goods onto the island, and even begin to birth the small tourism industry that welcomes tourists from pretty much anywhere but the United States. It's far from enough to support a complete comeback for the island, and the government remains incredibly oppressive, so it's important to understand that their idea of business and economic development is almost childlike and pedestrian compared to what we're used to. Having said that, the Cuban youth, they've got something that their parents and grandparents did not have. The internet. But having said that, it fucking sucks. So two quick developments that are worth covering in this period stand out before we bring this home. The first is the reduction in political prisoners and a push to allow equal rights for LGBTQ individuals. Now, the latter is actually the result of efforts by Raul Castro's daughter, Mariela, who opened the aging dictator's eyes to the concept of human rights for marginalized people. The former is a bit prickly, but in a way Americans should understand this better than anyone else. Cuba still has an incarceration problem, and it's something that plagues Cuban society and policy. What should be familiar to us is that dark-skinned Cubans are disproportionately incarcerated. 
Now, before we jump up and down and point to this as a failing, understand that we still lead the world in incarceration figures and have a clear problem with disproportionate treatment of black and brown people, so best not to throw stones on fuckers. And according to the Equal Dex Index that tracks the rights of marginalized people across the globe, we're basically equal to Cuba. The other development is the quest for broadband access to the internet. I can't overstate this enough because it's what the modern economy and infrastructure is all based upon. Cuban internet access is spotty and monitored. Spotty because they simply do not have the infrastructure to obtain quality access due to U.S. sanctions preventing private industries from laying fiber to support the island. Google announced a couple of years ago that they intended to do just that, much to the joy of Cuban citizens, but the government basically said, yeah, hold my fucking beer and nothing's happened as of yet. The other part is that it's closely monitored, so even in the zones where access is supported and the Cuban people can get online and even have social media profiles, Big Brother is watching. And they know it. That's the one thing that we had trouble reconciling as visiting Americans. The lack of personal freedom. Repressive economic and regressive social policies aside, the restriction on travel and personal liberties is kind of jarring. This was a palpable source of agitation among the younger people that we met, but not really the older people. The population is entirely literate, a remarkable achievement that still serves as a bright spot and an inflection point when married with the slow, steady increase in access to social media. The younger generation is highly educated and aware that a world outside of Cuba awaits, and it's only a matter of time before the island's forced seclusion faces an inevitable reckoning. I'm aware that this sentiment also smacks of ethnocentrism as though access to the United States is all that matters in terms of personal liberty and the freedom to travel. But the proximity of the U.S. and Cuba and the latter's inability to access goods, services, and vital imports make for an unnecessarily strained and unnatural existence. Despite the clear self-imposed disadvantages and the ones that have been imposed on them and plagued Castro's Cuba, one can't help but marvel at the fortitude of its people. There's an almost universal sense of pride in its revolutionary history and a belief that while the island's infrastructure is a mess, it's their mess. They successfully defied the most powerful nation in history for 60 fucking years and retained a collective sense of purpose and autonomy. Given the chance to take its place on the international stage again and participate in the world's economy unfettered by U.S. trade restrictions, it's entirely possible to imagine Cuba emerging as a powerhouse in the hemisphere. As far as how this happens, the, quote, never Cuba under a Castro mantra of the conservative Cuban-American voting bloc in the always important election state of Florida is one that clearly resonates with the Republican Party. But Democrats in charge of Congress and President Joe Biden are kind of running out of excuses unless we're simply waiting for Raul to die, which might be the case. Fidel is gone. Raul stepped down and handed the reins to Miguel Diaz-Canel, then earlier in 2021, Raul stepped down as the leader of the Communist Party. They're done. To hold a deceased Fidel accountable for the whole of the Cuban people is no longer a viable policy. Cuba's not perfect, but it's proud. And we might finally be standing in the moment when a true socialist system takes root without the influence of dictators, the oppression of its natural brother, and the hangover of a man who stood for nothing but controlled everything in his strange, beautiful and heartbreaking little world. Final word today goes to Samuel Farber, author of Cuba Since the Revolution of 1959, A Critical Assessment. Quote, 
It follows then that there may be the need to undergo a series of socialist revolutions before a new socialist political system and mode of production becomes stabilized and long-lasting. In any case, there can be no advanced historical guarantees of socialist perpetuity except the perennial struggle of actual people who continue making socialism a historical reality. Sometimes, Milton was right. Fuck him anyway. Free the Cuban people. Here ended the lesson. Okay, unfuckers. The only pod love is to remember to check out Blowback. If you found this interesting and want to go even further into the weeds, download Blowback on Stitcher. Book love, we have Cuba Since the Revolution of 1959, a critical assessment by Samuel Farber, as you heard at the end of the episode, Compañero, The Life and Death of Che Guevara by Jorge Castaneda, and Imperialism, Neoliberalism, and Social Struggles in Latin America. It's a real barn burner. You'll love it. Holy shit, we got a lot of coffee. Uh, So I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as possible, but I cannot thank everybody enough for doing this. Kevin K. bought us five coffees. Chase! bought us five coffees and said, I crushed your entire archive in two days. FMF is a personal model. Mike M bought us five coffees and said, look forward to buying actual coffee from you soon. And looking forward to the Milton Friedman episode. Fuck Milton Friedman. At Chris Dargis bought three coffees. Enjoy your fucking coffee. Keep on unfucking. Tom W bought one and said, I don't agree with all your views, but I sure appreciate what you do. Hey, thanks, Tom. Keith T bought 10 coffees. Great show. If you ever get a chance, let us know more about your views on Taibi, love him, Greenwald, respect him, and the Russian election interference. That's loaded. Okay. Maybe even some thoughts on the PMC, which stands for Professional Managerial Class. There's a lot being written about that lately. Developing some thoughts on that, and it will absolutely work that into the future. Uh, And here's the best part. Keith T then comes back again, buys one more coffee, and said, oh, forgot, FMF. That's a classic right there. Thank you, Keith. Thomas H. bought 10 fucking coffees and said, thank you for responding to Tristan on the last show, who felt like it's all hopeless. I feel that way sometimes too. Oh, and I really did this so that I could say, fuck Milton Friedman. Hey, whatever gets you going, my man. I appreciate that. And yes, fuck Milton. Now, Kimberly I. bought three coffees and said, amazing podcast and disagrees with the fact that we shouldn't let older kids listen to the unfiltered truth. She thinks that we should. What's a few fucks? Keep up the fucking good work. Okay, I will. On Facebook, Kevin R. just found us yesterday, whenever yesterday was when he posted that, and found us by David Pakman. Hey, David, thanks for sending Kevin R. away. Bob K., doing some goodwill hunting shit over there, said, I've been diving through episodes as I clean a university building on the third shift. I hope you're fucking solving equations on a board and somebody discovers you one day and you're like, how do you like them fucking apples? Ah! If only there were more people around to react to it as I play it out of my speaker. Oh, shit. Can you imagine that in the graveyard shift, right? At a university and they're just pumping away on fucking the Republic for no one to hear. Well, you're listening, Bob, and I appreciate that. And he said, rock on and fuck Milton Friedman. Okay. On Twitter, M. Bustama said, I love your podcast. Yours is the only one that I've listened to more than one episode of. Holy shit. And then said, in fact, I've listened to all of them. Wow. This is a person that doesn't fucking listen to more than one podcast. Listens to the podcast and then is like, no, I'm done. Came in and M. Bustama said, you're the one. I am the Highlander of podcasts. I am the one for M. Bustama. Hey, M. Bustama, thank you. Now, we have some great emails. So Aaron Z said, gotta say, I really appreciate your show. It's not just the rampant cursing. Fuck, 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 shit, shit, shit. 
But it's also the heavy... I, that, that was uh, editorial uh, liberties, by the way. That was not what Aaron wrote. Aaron's much more intelligent than that. So, But it's also the heavy focus on economics and the endless crotch punches directed at Milton Friedman. Do you have any recommendations for books that really eviscerate the man specifically? Hmm. So Aaron has conservative friends who basically worship this guy and he wants some good material to throw in their faces. Well, not only will you have a full-fledged fucking episode on Milton goddamn fucking Friedman himself... We will be quoting some really great resources and books to read, including some books that actually really love the guy because we have to look at that. Why? Why do they love this man? Because he wasn't all bad, just mostly fucked up. Michael B. actually sent us some really quality resources. So first of all, thank you for that. And then also said, fuck Milton Friedman and his trickle-down economics. He got a fucking Nobel Prize in economics, which just goes to show that not all people that win a fucking prize are good. Cringy has a Milton Friedman story. So I'm going to read this whole thing because I think it's very funny. Back in the 1960s, I was an undergrad at the University of Chicago. I regularly saw Friedman walking across campus, desperately trying not to look short, as I'm sure you know, and I do. He was barely 4'11". Not that there's anything wrong with that, but he was always accompanied by at least two men in jackets and ties, surely graduate students, or maybe untenured assistant professors desperate for a positive vote from the old guy when their time was up. They were bending over so far to talk in his ear that they surely suffer from back pain until this day, and I shudder to think what horrors they have since released on generations of students. Worse, they're now embedded in right-wing think tanks and government agencies. Fuck you, Milton! And that's a personal fuck you right there. Thank you, Cringy, for sharing that story. Couple of reviews before we go. Rx Bandit 85 might be a doctor, might be a nurse. Thank you for the work that you do. Said, quote, essential listening. Wendy Bikes Burns said, education with humor. I love this show. EKH0577 said, top tier. Far and away, one of the smartest political podcasts out there. Oh, <laughs> go on. Shapoodie. Shapoodie. German-Canadian had lost all faith in Americans, but listening to you has given me real hope. After listening to only the last two of your podcasts, I'm just a little less depressed up here in the great white north. Hey, Shapooty, dig this. Mm, in a month, maybe two months, we have a complete unfucking the great white north episode coming out. How about that? Gonna tackle my man Trudeau and see what's going on. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. Voy bien, unfuckers. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Camilo's Hat and Beard and distributed by the Buena Vista Social Club. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions, your hopes, your dreams, your fears to UNFTRpod at Gmail or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at UNFTR.substack.com to keep the conversation going between releases. <laughs>